Hey everybody, welcome back to the Practitioner's Podcast. We're applying Jesus-style disciple-making in everyday life. Special bonus episode for you today. We are going to take some audio that we used on the Reclamation Podcast and share it with you today. It's a a lot about Justin's story, about his heart for disciple-making. It was so good that we couldn't pass it up. As always, do me a favor, leave a rating, review, share the episode, let people about this brand new tool to help resource and disciple the local church to make disciples. As always, this episode is powered by Navigators Church Ministries, where their goal is to equip the local church every day in disciple making. Thank you so much and enjoy the episode. Hey, everybody, welcome to the Reclamation Podcast. I'm Tony. I'm excited to bring you a conversation with my friend of the last three years, Justin Gravitt. Justin is father to four. He works for Navigator Church Ministries and has been all around the world teaching people about what it means to disciple others. Justin, how the heck are you, man? Hey, doing well. Doing well. Good to be here with you. Thank you so much. So tell us, uh, everybody, a little bit about yourself. Uh, I mean, I kind I kind of outlined some you things. Stole my thunder. I but... stole your thunder. Well, you, I mean, you can tell the, everybody how old your kids are. You've got some young kids. I do. Yeah. So I have uh, three girls, nine, six, and four, and my son is two years old. So. That's a lot of kids under the age of ten. It's a lot. Yeah, our lives are full and fun. And how long have you been married? Married thirteen years now. Thirteen uh, years to my wife Kristen, and we met um, in a castle, actually. Oh, okay. I'll bite. Tell, <laughs> tell me more about the castle. <laughs> so uh, we both worked for the Navigators, and we worked. Um, we met actually in the the dining room of the castle, which is out in Colorado Springs, which is Glen Erie borders Garden of the Gods out there. If you've ever been, and uh, yeah, so that's in our story. Oh, that's awesome. Yes. Now, for somebody who doesn't know what the Navigators are, um, kind of paint a picture. What is Navigators? Where did it come from? How did you get connected to it? Yep. So the Navigators is an international, interdenominational Christian organization. We are focused on making disciples who make other disciples. And it was founded in 1933 by a guy named Dawson Trotman, who's known kind of today as the father of modern day disciple making and this movement that now is uh, seems to be gaining ground in the local churches, uh, the idea of making disciples who make disciples. Uh, he started that in many ways. Obviously, it was Jesus' idea originally. But right. uh, yeah, so he uh, he just started influencing men as they came off the ships out in California in the Navy and uh, discipling them. And the first guy he discipled brought a guy back to him and said, hey, Dawson, will you do with him what you've been doing with me? And Dawson said, no, I won't. He said, if I've helped you, then you help him. And so that's kind of the vision that he had. And and from that, it kind of blossomed out into a movement uh, that became the Navigators. That's incredible. So. And how did you get connected with them? So I first met the Navigators when I was uh, into my sophomore year at Miami University. And uh, a girl that I was crushing on in English class invited me to... I mean, it's always a girl. It is, it? right? It's always a girl. They draw you in. Um, and so she invited me to go to Nav Night, and I'd never heard of it. I didn't know anything about it, but she was inviting me, and so I was there, you know. Right. Um, and I was just blown away by this group of people that were seemed to be really genuine in their pursuit of God and and... At that time in my life, that was something I don't feel like I, I'd experienced in the same way. So uh, from there, I, I started to get involved mostly my junior year because that was the last month of my sophomore year, but got involved from there and uh, yeah, 
the rest is history. So. What were some of the first things that you did to grow your personal relationship with God? Because I, what I hear you saying is that prior to that moment, you hadn't really been there before. But what were some of the things that the navigators and, and really the person who was discipling you it's, were teaching you that you had just thought uh, never really done mm-hmm. or thought about prior to that moment? Yeah, so I grew up going to church, being forced to go to church. And so different periods of my childhood, I really resisted that a lot. Um, but it was just part of our family culture that we went went off to college and you know just kind of lived typical college life until I went to that that group that one night. And um, junior year, I began to get involved and went to Bible study. I still remember the first night of Bible study with those guys. It was about 10 of us, junior junior guys. Um, and at the beginning, they went around and shared a verse that they'd memorized. Oh. And I was, I mean, they didn't make me do it because it was my first time. Right. But I was amazed that guys my age were actually memorizing the Bible and I'd never been around that before. And then our Bible study discussion started, and these guys were, you know, in the midst of sharing. They would say things like, well, yeah, it reminds me of Philippians 1, 6, and then they would quote the verse, and that was just kind of how the discussion worked. And I was blown away, and I realized, boy, these guys know God and know the Bible in a way that I don't, and I really wanted that. And so I kept going to Bible study, but then um, one of the older guys, a guy named Greg, Uh, started to disciple me and that was my first experience with discipling uh, and being discipled and it radically changed my life uh, because it went from me hearing what I should do to somebody showing me how to do it and so that made all the difference for me so it was things like well Justin you know do you ever read the Bible I'd be like oh you know sometimes I read it a little bit open it up has anybody taught you like how to read it Uh, I'm like no what about prayer? Do you ever pray? Well, yeah, I pray. Has anybody taught you like how, how to pray? Like, what do you do? How do you do that? And so he just got in the weeds with me about how to walk with God and how to do those disciplines uh, that oftentimes we hear about in church, but nobody, uh, we don't often have the opportunity to have someone come alongside us and, and show us how. Right. At this point, you're still junior, senior. Junior, yeah. yeah, junior, and he discipled me junior and senior year. So it was those things. He taught me how to memorize scripture, and how do you to... remember the first scripture that you ever memorized? Yeah, it was Second Corinthians five seventeen. All right, hit it, man, hit it. <laughs> uh, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. That's awesome. Yeah, and uh, so junior, senior year, and probably for the next. Eight, ten years after that, I memorized two verses a week and reviewed them. And, you know, at one point, a guy I was discipling said, Man, Justin, it seems like you know the whole Bible. How many verses do you know? And I said, I, don't, I have no idea how many verses I know. But, you know, what's more important to me is how many verses know me. Mm. And so, you know, God's not impressed by how many verses we can spit back out. Um, but what he wants is our hearts. And so that's really the goal of all those disciplines is you know surrendering and aligning our hearts towards towards God and what he's calling us to. How much do you think of your faith walk has been formed by disciplines? Cuz I I do think that in the church world today, especially in the attractional church model that we see so often like you know, I'm I'm just going to church to go and listen to the preacher or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh we we don't talk about disciplines much. 
we make the bar to entry so low that mm-hmm. disciplines have kind of are, are if they're in the language they're very later how much of your faith do you think has been formed by discipline a lot i mean it's a hard question how much but uh discipline's a dirty word in our culture right yeah um especially in church world where some church cultures are really sensitive to legalism and you know all that sort of thing but to me discipline has never been about earning my salvation uh, it's just been more about how do I know God better and how to be how do I become more like him I'm a big believer in drip by drip or brick by brick and so you know if we just do a little bit consistently uh, after a while it, it adds up to a lot and that's what I view disciplines as is you know especially scripture memory if I can memorize a verse a week or a verse a month man over 10 years that's going to add up to a lot uh, and it's going to help me to know God, and it's going to give both me and the Holy Spirit uh, language to communicate, um, you know, between me and God and God and me. Uh, so, yeah, I think a lot. I think that uh, disciplines are important. I believe that, um, you know, the gospel is not opposed to striving. It's opposed to earning. And mm. um, Tell me more about that. I think we can flush that out a little bit. Yeah, so... You know, going back to legalism idea that a lot of times people are afraid to really pursue God hard or to or to dive deep into disciplines, especially on those days where maybe you don't feel like doing it. Um, but having the, the capacity to say, you know, I don't feel like it, but I'm going to do it anyway, I think really honors God. Um, and, you know, I think legalism happens when we're trying to earn something from God or to impress him. But... We see striving language all through scripture. I mean, especially when you look at Paul and think about the things that, that he did and talked about running the race, you know, he doesn't run aimlessly. He ran, he ran in such a way as to get the prize. You know, in 1 Corinthians fifteen ten, he talks about he worked harder than all of them. Hmm. I mean, that was his perspective, that from, from a human perspective, he worked his tail off uh, to know God and to serve him. But even in that verse for 1510, he backs off and he says, but it, not I, but the grace of God that was in me. So I really believe in that dual focus of, you know, from a human perspective, I want to work my tail off and strive to honor and to be like him. But even that, you know, I have to step back and acknowledge even that desire and that ability isn't from me. It's from what God's doing in me. So do you, do you think, um, do you think that, the kind of the resurgence in disciple making is it's kind of become kind of uh, culturally trendy lately. Is, is that, uh, do you think that's a result of people wanting to do harder things? Like in a lot of ways it, it's reminded me of these like Spartan races hmm. where people are, are getting out of their, uh, everything is handed to me kind of comfort zone to earning something or, or striving for something to, to use that word. I, I really like the way you say that. Uh, do you think that they're, it's, uh, it's a cultural shift, or do you think it's um, something different? I think there's a lot of factors. I think that that's one of them. I think our culture and where we're going, uh, the middle ground is being lost. And so for better or worse, that you know, if, if somebody's going to follow Jesus, it's becoming less and less popular culturally. Uh, today, the statistic that I've most recently heard is that those under 30 are six times more likely to be atheist or agnostic than they are to be a Christ follower. Um, And so that's just a trend of our culture. So as a result, I think that disciple making 
uh, is gaining momentum in the church out of necessity hmm. because churches are seeing that we can't do business as usual anymore because the attractional model is uh, is losing ground and it's not having the effectiveness that it once did. And so I think you know the, the ideas of disciple making and, and having relationship with another and influencing each other with our very lives uh, and, and less with the information education model and more with you know, a life on life relational model. So that's incredible to think about. And, and I love what you have to say about culture. And I, I think you have an interesting perspective on culture, partly because part of your ministry took you out of the United States <clears throat> to a completely different culture to, to make disciples in a land that you were not familiar with. Tell us a bit about that and, and kind of how that journey unfolded from the NAV side and then what you had to convince your wife to do in order to go over there with you. <laughs> yeah, so um, my wife and I served as missionaries in Thailand for four years consecutively. We were in, in and out for 15 years prior to that. Um, you know, our, our story together, my wife and I, is such that we, we both felt called to missions uh, when we were dating. And so there wasn't a ton of convincing on that side. Um, but being in Thailand was really eye-opening in a lot of ways because it's a completely different culture. Um, you know, the opposite of the things that we think here are what they think there. Uh, an example would be uh, authority. So in America, uh, we, we will obey res- authority, but we don't respect it. And so, you know, to flesh that out, we uh, will say bad things about our leaders. You know, you can get on any news site and hear... I mean, Twitter was basically invented for that. Right? Yes. And so, but we'll do what we were supposed to do. We'll fall in line and we'll do it because we don't want the consequence. Now, Thailand's the opposite. Thailand respects their leaders, but they won't obey them. And so, you know, a couple examples where I saw this is... I was teaching at a government elementary school and uh, was in a meeting with the principal and the grade grade level teachers. And the principal was clearly saying how he wanted the testing done. So we were not to be in our own rooms for testing. We were to switch rooms and proctor a different classroom. And so he goes away. And as soon as he left, uh, the other teachers said, no, we're not doing that. (laughs) And I said, I said, wait a second. He just said we're supposed to do that. Yeah, but we're not doing it. And uh, I said, oh, okay. And so another example over there is, you know, they would set up these police roadblocks and check for helmets. You know, you had to have a helmet if you're driving or riding on a motorbike. Uh, You had to have registration, all that sort of thing. Well, since they would block the road off, if if there was any line at all, uh, often people would stop and just do a U-turn. And I witnessed once where a motorbike went up, there was no line went up, stopped about 10 feet from the policeman, looked at the policeman, and the, the guy didn't have a helmet on, just turned around and went the other way. In America, that would never work. The policeman laughed, right? Because it did, didn't just, chase him at all. Didn't chase him, uh-uh. And that's just the way culture is, and that's one of 100 examples I could give you of how different the cultures are. Um, but because of that, it helped me to uh, see things from a different perspective. And so even re-entering into America, um, you know, I was hit in the face by our cultural um, norms of we value productivity so highly. 
I remember one article, I didn't read it, but I saw the headline early on when I was back. And the headline was, uh, five ways to brush your teeth more effect, more efficiently. There, there's five more ways. Apparently. Apparently. Okay. <laughs> I didn't read it, right. but I was just like, man, how deep does this go? Right. This idea that we should do things as productively and as efficiently as we can. And that stood out to me. So it's productivity and fear. So the other way that that article could have been phrased and it would have fit very well in our culture is, you know, five ways you need to be brushing your teeth so they don't rot out. Hmm. Right. And so we we pull those two levers often in our culture. And in Thailand, we don't we don't have those levers. The levers are much more communal and relational. And I think as I think about disciple making in the church, those deeply influence the way that I that I view both of those things that we that we can stand to become and really should become a lot more relational uh, in the ways that we practice our faith. Give me a picture of what you and your wife had to do for your own faith while you're in Thailand. I mean, how how were you um, managing faith and life? In a, I mean, you were there as missionaries. You weren't there. You were you were there teaching English in a government school, mm-hmm. and so it requires some real intentional behaviors. I would imagine. I mean, yeah. right? Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So we were there as missionaries. Those of us the the Thai people that we were relating with didn't know we were missionaries. And there's cultural reasons for that that would have put up huge uh, walls between us. Um, So our faith life was deeply integrated with every other aspect of our life. So, you know, I taught at a school, we were doing pioneering work uh, as far as uh, evangelism goes. And so we were sharing our faith naturally and within the context of relationships. So we were very good friends with our neighbors um, to the point this was another cultural difference. They, there's no knocking really in Thailand. If they want to come see you, they that just That makes kind of... me feel really uncomfortable. <laughs> it did for us too. So they just walk into your house. Oh. Hey, you know, we're here. And, uh. So you guys weren't walking around the house naked or anything? No. Because, no, because uh-huh. people would just walk in all the time. Nobody wants to see that. No. <laughs> that really frightens me. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, um, so we were in deep friendship with them and, you know, I was missing lots of things about home and, you know, I just shared that. And one of the things that I think we get hung up on in America is we, we compartmentalize our life and we compartmentalize our faith. And really, I think the, the gospel moves best in relationships and it moves best when uh, we integrate. We integrate everything. And so in the same way that I was sharing with my friend, his name was Song, as his uh, my best friend over there. And I'd share with him how I was missing certain foods over here. In the same way, I would share with him things that I'd gotten out of scripture that day. And he's a Buddhist and continues to be a Buddhist, but uh, we were friends, right? And so part of being friends with me means that you get to hear about my faith life. And I don't do that uh, as a way to manipulate somebody. I do that just in sharing who I am. That's authentic. Absolutely. Yeah. And... Oftentimes, I could tell he wasn't that interested in what I was sharing, but I didn't mind because there were a lot of times that he was sharing things with me that I wasn't that interested in. Did he share a lot about his faith as well? He didn't. Um, He shared as much as he had to share. Got it. But it wasn't very important to him. And so, you know, it it was an open topic, and actually his daughter ended up becoming a Christ follower. And as that was happening, it was an open topic for us together. And so, you know, I would, 
as his daughter, who was 15 at the time, would come to me with questions about Jesus and about the things she was seeing in our family's life, I would take them to song. And I'd say, hey, I just wanted to let you know, you know, your daughter's asking this stuff. Um, you know, is there anything you'd want me to tell her? And, um, you know, for me, that was a way of honoring him and honoring our friendship. And um, my goal was not to uh, tear apart a family, but to unite a family around Christ. And so I wasn't just interested in his daughter following Christ. I was interested in all of them. And so he said to me, he said, well, just tell her to talk to me about it. (laughs) And I I said, okay, I'll definitely do that. Um, But... You know, if she if she continues to ask me, can it, are you fine if I just share with her about what I know of Jesus? And he said, yeah, that'd be great. And so that's what happened. And eventually she came to faith and uh, shared and continues to share with her parents the difference that that makes for her. So, And you guys, you guys didn't have like a Sunday morning experience over there. Yeah, I, I mean, that's no. not, yeah. Right, so yeah, so our faith... Um, was fueled by our disciplines, right? So it was by getting into the word and praying and relating with one another and sharing with our friends, you know, the things that we were reading and reading scripture with our friends, you know, as that those opportunities came. Um, and then uh, I had accountability and stuff through friends that I had back in the States that I would Skype with and, you know, be in um, intentional uh, relationships with them in those ways. But yeah, we didn't have a, there just wasn't, uh, that opportunity for us there. And then you guys had kids while you were over there? So we moved when our oldest daughter was eight months old. And then our six-year-old, current six-year-old was born over there. Um, and then our four-year-old was born just after we got back. So. And what yeah. was it like coming back? I mean, you'd already kind of mentioned the culture shock once before, but you're back here in the United States. Uh, you guys moved to Beaver Creek, Ohio, which is, mm-hmm. is not... Um, it's not Thailand. Mm-mm. What was that like for you? It was a big shift. I mean, in a lot of ways, just some of the stuff I mentioned that what we missed the most was the relational aspect of the culture. So in Thailand, you had to work to be alone. In America, you have to work to be with people. Um, what do you think that difference does to community and culture? Like, I, I mean, that, that's a really profound statement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think here, most people don't know how to love one another uh, because we're so used to being isolated. I'm an introvert, um, and so I'm comfortable being alone. Um, and, you know, I realize that if I'm going to fulfill what God's asked me to do, I have to be with people. And, you know, I work against myself in some ways because of my design, you know, where I'd rather be alone. Sometimes I have to get out. But even extroverts, I observe... Um, you know, they can be with people, but a lot of times they don't know how to dwell with people. And so one of the things that we have concentrated on since moving back is being present on purpose in our neighborhood. And so figuring out ways to um, to just be and to build relationships with our neighbors who aren't used to that and to, um, you know, initiate and to say no to a lot of opportunities that we could do that would have us... Um, you know, really busy and running around a lot, we say no to a lot of those opportunities so that we can be present on purpose uh, for our neighbors and build those relationships um, so that we can love people deeply the way that, you know, I feel like the gospel asks us to, you know. So if if, uh, if you were with somebody who'd never heard that concept before, 
present on purpose, I'm assuming like a lot of our listeners, what would be one thing that you would tell people to do kind of right off the bat? Like what's the one practical tip if you want to be present on purpose? So the priority, right? So the priority, when we make that a priority, we accept things that come with it. So one of the things that comes with it is boredom uh, early on. Hmm. Uh, So when we moved into our neighborhood, we didn't know anybody, right? And so we wanted to have relationships, but uh, it doesn't work in our culture just to, you know, pitch a bunch of lawn chairs in the front yard and accost people as they walk by, right? So we have to find culturally relevant ways to get in people's lives. And so, you know, at the front end, there's a lot of time where it feels like you're not doing anything. But your conversations, you know, with neighbors that maybe last 15 or 20 minutes a couple times a week um, will expand if you have the time for them to. But a lot of times in our culture, we have, we fill our time because we, we want to be productive, right? Oh, yeah. All right. Deep value. And so if we're just not having much to do, then there's all these opportunities around us of things to do. Well, a lot of times we'll fill our time at the front end. And then when those relationships start to develop and we have um, more uh, capacity or not, that's not the word, more connection with our neighbors so that we can do more, um, we, we ourselves don't have time anymore because we have this thing on Monday night, this thing on Tuesday night, this thing on Wednesday night. Thursday nights are only night to breathe, so we just kind of huddle down and you know watch a show or whatever. All of it's understandable, but... You know, the decisions that we make early on are going to impact us later on. And so being present on purpose, when we make that a priority, we have to accept some of those things early on is that, you know, we might feel bored, but that boredom necessity is the mother of invention. So if we want relationships and we're sitting around bored and we don't have relationships, it's going to get us out on a walk in our neighborhood. And as we're walking and we see somebody out that's two streets over, we're more likely to go up and talk to that person as they're working in a garage instead of just walking by. And those were the sorts of things that we did um, to begin developing those relationships. And uh, it wasn't easy, um, but it was... Uh, I mean, how many years have you been back now? It'll be five years in April. Do you feel like, do you feel like you're out of place with the neighborhood where you want to be yet or still a work in progress? I mean... Our neighbors randomly stopping by. I mean, not just walking in like they did in Thailand, obviously, but <laughs> right. yes. Um, so it's always in process, but we have made tremendous uh, progress in that. Uh, we have neighbors that do stop by. Um, those that we're closest with, we're now at a place with them where we're their first call when they're going through life crisis, um, and these neighbors are non-believers, and so that is. Uh, tremendously encouraging to us because a lot of times in church world we talk about reaching people that don't know Christ but we don't have relationships with them or we have the relationship so we think we're friends with them but they don't consider us friends of theirs Hmm. and so one of the questions I'll ask pastors a lot is you know when's the last time a non-christian invited you to do something Uh, because we can't manipulate that right we can manipulate when I ask somebody that I might have known to go do something but Really, when those invitations start coming both ways, then we know that we have a friend and we're trusted. Um, so we're seeing that in our neighborhood and uh, we're seeing progress, uh, spiritually speaking, with our neighbors. Um, and that's, you know, 
your listeners don't know me, but if they did, they would know that it's not a, a result of me having a magnetic personality. It's intentionality <laughs> and, and loving people. And the more we do that, people respond because we're in a culture where relationships are uh, rare in terms of with neighbors and with people that um, just want to love us and just want to care about us. And I think that's what God's calling calling all of us to do. I love that. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the things that I've learned from you over the years, we've been meeting together now for uh, three, almost four years. And one of the things I've really learned and absorbed from your philosophy is ministry has very little to do with the church. Mm-hmm. Ministry is just a way of life. Mm-hmm. And the church is a part of that in, in a communal sense. But um, frontline ministry really happens in your neighborhood. Mm-hmm. How, how did you come to that? Um, did, did somebody give you that? Or is that a navigator thing? Or is that just a gospel thing that you've pulled out? Because, I mean, I do see it in scripture everywhere. Right. Yeah. So those who discipled me really helped me to see that and helped me to grow those skills. Um, and that's, you know, most of it. I think that for me and for most pastors or vocational Christian workers, uh, we have an advantage in the neighborhood and a disadvantage at the workplace. And so our advantage in the neighborhood is those initial conversations. We can say, um, you know, I work, I'm a pastor. Hmm. Or, you know, I work with the navigators and I help train pastors and church leaders on how to make disciples and cultures of disciple making. Well, so I can say that conversation one because they're going to ask me what I do, right? Of course. And after they ask me that, it's an easy and appropriate next question to say, you know, what's your spiritual background? And now we are already talking about spiritual things and I can show them this is a safe topic. We can talk about it. But an engineer in the neighborhood, when they get asked, what do you do? And they say, well, I'm an engineer. It's not an appropriate next question to say, what's your spiritual background? I mean, you could. (laughs) Yeah, it's a little awkward. It can be a little awkward, right? And so we have an advantage in the neighborhood, but our disadvantage is in the workplace because in the workplace, we are working with people who already know Christ. And the engineer is likely working around most people who don't yet know him. And so for most... um, for most Christian workers, the the best place to have a ministry among those that don't yet know Christ is in the neighborhood or in the community, you know, around sports or you know different things like I know you're involved with. Um, but for those of uh, for those others who aren't vocational Christian workers, uh, engineers, teachers, etc., a lot of their best ministry happens in the workplace. So that's just I mean a combination of being in the Word and helping other guys helping me to see that. I love it. I love it. And and you're now taking a lot of this message to pastors kind of throughout the community, all over the Miami Valley, and Southwest Ohio, really. Um, how, how would you describe what it is you do, um, you do for, for people like me, pastors and, and churches throughout? I mean, you've got a kind of unique view on the church and ministry. Yeah. Um, so when I'm asked what I do, uh, I have lots of different answers. The one I like the best right now is I say I help pastors and church leaders um, make people who look, act, and smell more like Jesus and less like religious consumers. Mm. And people kind of turn their head and say, oh. <laughs> and yeah, especially the smell part. <laughs> right. Yeah, that one gets them. Uh, but 
so that in a nutshell, that's the end result that we're going after is, you know, most people go to church and many people have gone to church for decades. And yet the way they act, the way they live their lives is no different or not noticeably different from those who never go to church. And that's not what Christ called us, called us to be or do. And so I help pastors figure out, well, how do we do that? Um, one of the one of my first questions with pastors traditionally is I'll ask them what do you what do you feel like the purpose of the church is, and they they will answer something around disciple making. They might not use that language, but they'll right. say you know to make disciples to help uh, people know Christ, you know all those sorts of things. And so I'll clarify. <coughs> so so to make disciples, yeah yeah make disciples great. So I'll say well how's it going for you in your church. And a lot of times I'll just get, you know, a the head shaking no, right. yeah. you know. Um, sometimes they'll say, you know, it's really not going well. The best I've ever heard so far is, you know, it's going okay. Um, but then I'll ask, I'll say, well, tell me about the training that you've had in making disciples. Because I'm talking to pastors and, and helping pastors that run the range of currently going to seminary all the way to they have their PhD and one guy now teaches at a seminary that I'm working with. And I'll say, tell me about the training you had in seminary about how to make disciples. And they said, I didn't have any training. And I said, well, you must have had a class or something. I mean, you have your PhD, or you got your Master's of Divinity, three years of seminary training. The main goal of the church is to make disciples. You must have had one class. And they say, no. And then I, then I empathize. So I, I say, let me get this straight. So your main job is to make disciples, and you haven't had any training on how to do that. And they say, yeah. And so that's an incredibly hard place to be. Most of the pastors I work with realize that uh, preaching sermons and running classes is not, uh, they're not getting the results that they want. They want to see life transformation. They want to see disciples made. And so... They are frustrated. They don't know what to do. They haven't been trained how to do it. And they don't know anyone else that can help them. And so because of the opportunity that God has given me early in my life of that first guy, Greg, coming alongside and discipling me and setting me on a course really to, um, to invest my life into others and to learn a lot about how do I help somebody grow spiritually from a place where they're very young and uh, all the way to where they can make disciples of others. Uh, I've learned a lot about it. And so I get to come alongside pastors and just help them, you know, figure out, well, what is this disciple making thing? How do I do it in a way that's life on life and not an educational model? And so, you know, the seminary model often is, you know, if you know the right things then you'll do the right things. Sure. In yeah. other words, education leads to transformation. And the result is that's not the case. If that was the case, we'd all have six-pack abs and million-dollar bank accounts. Come on. That's what I'm missing. Right? Right. <laughs> we all, I've read all those books. <laughs> right. We all know so much more than what we're applying. And so, you know, the, the knowledge and the education is not what drives transformation. And what I believe and have found is that it's application that drives transformation, application that is that is rooted in a relationship uh, with another. And so when I look at Jesus' life, that is what he did. And so what I do with pastors is help them uh, develop convictions around who Jesus was, what he did, 
and how do we do that with others? Uh, a friend of mine put it like this. He said, you know, most churches separate the teachings of Jesus from the methods of Jesus, and then they're surprised when they don't get the results of Jesus. Mm. Say that one more time because it's so good. Say it one more time. So we believe that it, we can separate the teachings of Jesus from the methods of Jesus and still get the results of Jesus, and we can't. Those things have to be in line together. And so we can't just teach about the moral teachings that Jesus had and try to emulate those and think that somehow that's going to get the results of you know, men who are passionately committed to the same mission that Jesus had and really changed the world, right? But we have to look and understand it. How did Jesus help those men move from, you know, guys who are ordinary, everyday guys, right? Fishermen. Fishermen, right, yeah. Tax collector. Sure. Right? Doctor. I mean, these were average, everyday people that he took and trained them and lived with them and loved them in such a way that their entire mission and life purpose changed so that they went off and impacted others and eventually changed the world. And the reason you and me are sitting here talking about it is because Jesus invested in those 12 and 11 of them went on and did the same with others. And that chain went all the way down to us. So I help pastors get that. And I, Well, and I'll be uh, the first one to say that, I mean, you've drastically changed the way I look at disciple making because when, when you and I first met, I, I thought I knew some things about discipleship. You, you did? I, yeah. No, I, I mean, I was doing discipleship in, in, big, in big churches, you know, and I was the small groups guy. And, and, um, and I was at this place personally where I was so frustrated because small groups um, were constantly disappointing me in the fact that they, they weren't leading to life change. And there were two things that you showed me um, through scripture and through through a lot of time and and we I think we can say this even a couple fights uh-huh. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that that were game changers for me and one is that um, the word intentional mm-hmm. intentional relationships lead to more intentional relationships this idea about going in with a plan and an agenda a, a, a growing edge still in my life that mm-hmm. I'm working on being more intentional. And the second is, is that uh, community for community's sake is not the same as community for disciple making's sake. Hmm. Like it's uh, small groups are not the end zone. They're, they're, uh, they're like the 20 yard line mm-hmm. and getting someone to a place where they can make a disciple who can make a disciple in those intentional relationships that's cooking with gas. Mm-hmm. So, so thank you for that. Yeah, it's been fun. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's been a heck of a journey. What's been working with me and other pastors? What's been kind of the hardest part for you in this, uh, other than the fact that uh, we're ridiculously pastors are ridiculously hard and nailed down on schedules, and we don't right. like being told what to do, and we talk too much, <laughs> like right now. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think, so each pastor is his own guy, right? And so part of what I love about what I do is I have to figure out, all right, who is the pastor? How is he wired up? What is he naturally strong in? What is he naturally weak in? And then I have to help come alongside and figure out, okay, how do we help this person grow in their, their picture of what it means to be a disciple and to make disciples from where they are to... Um, um, the method really and the methods that Jesus employed 
Um, I talk a lot when I work with pastors about the intentional relational scale. And most of us, um, you know, it's not a one-to-one correlation, but mostly introverts are naturally intentional. And so that means, you know, they're going to plan, they're going to think through how they do things. Even in relationships, they'll do that. Relation, relational people are normally your extroverts, although not always, but they're the, the opposite, right? So they're the ones that they have no trouble sitting down with people, but making a plan is, is a struggle. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I have to help identify well, where is this pastor? How do I help them grow towards the middle of that? And to me, one of the beautiful things about disciple making is it requires us to be mature, to be excellent at it. We don't have to be mature to start. Right. Anyone can start. It's like playing a piano, right? We can sit down a piano and produce notes that sound good. They're the right notes. Sure. Right? But So it's easy to start, but if we want to be excellent at it and see uh, disciples that are go off and reproduce for the rest of their lives, you know, we have to continue to grow in, in becoming excellent and skilled in it. And so with pastors, some of the challenges um, with the relational guys, it's helping them figure out some intentional tools that they can re- they can use in relation in their discipling relationships for the intentional guys it's helping them raise the profile and value of life on life patterns with people and EQ so just understanding the emotional side of people's lives and how do we motivate people um, that goes beyond just hammering them with facts and logic um, and so those are some of the biggest ones. EQ, emotional intelligence kind of, right? Yes. Yeah. Yep, yep. So. It, it's uh, intriguing to me. Do you find that most pastors are introverts or extroverts? Or is it so really there's a, there's a really good balance there. Is it? Okay. Yeah. I mean, uh, my experience, so this is a limited sample, right? But um, a lot of the younger guys are more relational. A lot of the older guys I work with seem to be more intentional. Now that could be just a sample bias that you know has emerged, but yeah. But I mean, since I've known you, you've worked with probably I mean over twenty pastors, easy. Yeah, I, I yeah. mean, I'm currently coaching or discipling twenty pastors across twelve twelve churches. Um, so, you know, over the past five years, I, I haven't kept the numbers, but yeah, we're somewhere between that and fifty, probably as far as yeah, pastors. And, you know, and pastors come and go, <laughs> just like any any other relationship that we're in. I mean, right. It re- it really I appreciate the model that you do with with us with me because it feels like you're you're modeling. This is this. Uh, it's the very nature of what we're talking about. We're modeling the idea. Mm-hmm. So yeah. uh, you work with pastors. You get to see the. The ugly side of the church, which we know is is exists. Mm-hmm. No one's going to be naive about that. Um, you're you're uh, serving ministry in your community. How how do you and your wife and your kids? How are you guys keeping your faith alive in that process? Because it it feels like it could really get beat <clears throat> down pretty easily by the. I mean, the church can be a really mean place sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So our life. I mean, there's a lot of things that we're involved in, um, you know, across a lot of spaces and different spheres. But really, I view my life as I I do one thing, and that's make disciples. And so some of the ways that I do that are in the neighborhood with non-believers. I do it with pastors and church leaders. I'm an interpreter uh, for the Thai community in Dayton. Um, But in the midst of all that, we're just making disciples. My wife uh, helps out in some ways with churches uh, and ladies, but she has a couple spheres that she's cultivated on her own. So she has uh, a woman's group that she works with 
Um, she started a, um, what do they call it, a friendship society with Turkish women that just kind of fell in her lap. Maybe okay. we don't have any. Yeah. You know. Um, why not? Why not? Uh, for our kids, one of the things that we do, and we do several things really, but we have a family mission statement that keeps us focused and aligned. Would you, um, would you mind sharing it? Sure. Yeah. It's a bit of a mouthful. Go for it. <laughs> um, our mission is to understand is to, I'm sorry, I'm going to start again. Please do. Okay. Our mission is to love God and others like Jesus did, to understand who we are, both our strengths and our shortcomings, to seek freedom within and peace without, to faithfully follow the road laid out for us with compassionate eyes and grateful hearts, and to sacrifice for the benefit of others. And so, you know, all of our kids who are over two can quote that for you. Um, and some of the intentional things that, that we do with them. I do a Bible study with uh, the three girls, so the nine, six, and four-year-old every morning. Um, so this year... How do, you, how do you guys pick what you're studying? So I've, I've... Well, we mix it up. So sometimes I write them. Sure. Uh, so this year it's been stuff that I've written. So we've, we've looked at uh, three things this year. Who is God? Who is man, as in who, is, who are humans? Um, and then currently we're looking at who is Jesus and what did he do? What an incredible gift. Yeah. And so last year we did um, another study. It was blanking out on the cold case Christianity, I think it was, for oh, yeah, kids. Yeah. It was the for kids version. So we read through that and talked about it. Um, so we do that in the mornings. Uh, at dinner times, we have different days where we'll do things intentionally. Um, so if we have lots to talk about, then a lot of times we won't get to it, but you know, like Mondays, our mission statement Mondays. And so we'll have one, one of them share the mission statement. And then we just talk about how did we live that out, uh, on that day. And it could be any part of it. And so it's just time of sharing, uh, Tuesdays are Thai Tuesdays. So I tried to get them, you know, my, my oldest two could speak Thai when we left Thailand, um, that has quickly been eroding. So we did Thai Tuesdays for a while where I'd only speak Thai to them and they got really, really frustrated. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I would say, hey, I'm going to speak the language I want. You speak back whatever you want. But they were still really, really frustrated. So I pulled back on that some. But uh, what we do on Thai Tuesdays is now we share a story from Thailand, um, you know, from our time there, from our experience there. And they enjoy hearing about that. Uh, Wednesday's Wacky Wednesday, so we just sit in a different seat than we normally sit at the table. Got it. Just do whatever. Mix it up. Yeah. Thursday, we don't have anything. Friday is family's, Family Story Friday, and so we'll just share a story, my wife and I, just from our past, and if they have any stories they want to share, then they do that. Um, but the big goal with the kids is just to integrate faith and life, and so we don't, we don't go share our faith, or we don't go, sh go serve somewhere. Uh, we just do that in the midst of our life. And then we talk about it. And the other thing we talk a lot with the kids about is what they're seeing. Because we really believe that if Jesus is who he says he is, then they should be able to see a difference between our lives and those that don't follow Christ. And a difference that, that goes beyond, you know, do this, don't do that. But a difference in the quality of who we are and the quality of, of the very fabric of our lives. And so we try to encourage the kids to just observe. Um, what are you seeing? What are you experiencing? When you went over 
to that house for a birthday party, you know, what'd you see? You know, and sometimes it's great stuff and we encourage that. Sometimes it's stuff that they're like, oh, I wouldn't sure about that. And we try to dive into that. Well, where do you think that comes from? And and so, you know, the big thing for us is trying to integrate. Yeah, you're exegeting you know, the culture really as you're living it. You're you're pulling out the what the truths are. Yes. Yep, exactly. That's an, an incredible gift for your your kids and um, I think was it hard to start or just a matter of just deciding that you're going to do it well I'm really intentional <laughs> I do know that yes. I do know that about you so it wasn't hard to start it was just a matter of is your wife as intentional uh, she's not quite as but she is you know she naturally puts, intentional as well she puts up with your intentionality oh yeah <laughs> good yep. so good. we're a good match in that um, but yeah and, and the thing is uh, we're disciplined, but we're not regimented. Sure. And so we don't have to do any of these things. And if it if it just feels like none of us are in the mood for it, if you want to call an audible, you can. We just, and, yeah, we yeah. just don't. Yeah. You know. So that's that's awesome. Now I I've also learned a lot about quiet time from you. I know you're very passionate about that, and I would be remiss if I didn't ask you to tell the story about the rule that you have for yourself when it comes to quiet time in the morning. Um, and, and kind of how you got into that. I think it goes back to college, if I recall, right? It does, yeah. And I don't, I don't live by that rule anymore, but I'll share the story that you remember. Um, so when I was first getting started in disciplines, I was having a hard time developing consistency and, and spending time with God every day. Mm-hmm. And the, the guy that was discipling me was trying to help me with that, and I'd set a goal, and then the next week I'd come, and I hadn't done the goal or... Maybe I had, you know, because I was trying to do it first thing in the morning, but I was falling asleep, you know, while I was trying to do it, and so it wasn't really fruitful. Um, but more of the time, it was a matter of priority. I just wasn't doing it. So he shared with me a verse, Job twenty three twelve, 12, uh, which says, I have not departed from the commands of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily bread. And he asked me, he said, you know, what do you see in this verse? And I just shared some stuff. And then he said... Would you say that you treasure the words of his mouth more than your daily bread? Hmm. And, you know, it's one of those questions where you, you know the right answer. Right. And he, he got you right in the heart. He did. But we had the relationship where, you know, it didn't, it wasn't offensive to me. It wasn't overstepping the relationship. Um, I said, no, you know, I want to. And he said, well, you should pray about that. And so I prayed about it. And one of the things that God put on my heart to do was not to, not to eat until I'd had time with God. And so I made that commitment in my life. You know, I was a senior in college at that time. And for about three years, I lived by that, that I would not uh, eat breakfast. So I missed breakfast some, uh, missed lunch here and there. Um, but I... Never missed dinner. I didn't miss dinner. My stomach forced me. To, right. like, yeah. Um, but that really helped me, right? It helped me to develop that discipline. And what I learned from it, and the reason I moved away from it, was I realized, you know, because I had... Uh, seen and experienced how good it was that that habit was then ingrained in me after those three years of living by that hmm. that I didn't need to do that anymore um, and so yeah that that really helped me it's not something that you know everybody has to do or anything like that but, but it's, something it's a that... great simple mental game that you can play with yourself uh, I, I've never had a problem. I'm a morning guy, so I've never really had a problem getting up and getting after the word mm-hmm. uh, the last couple of years. But um, I often use this rule um, in guys that I'm discipling because uh, they struggle getting in the habit of it. 
Hmm. And so yeah. I, I, I'm a big fan of playing mind games with yourself in order to be successful. Yeah. And I, I think that this is a, a great, a great mind game. So yeah, it certainly helped me because I, I do want to treasure God's words for me more than food. Yeah. Right. Um, but sometimes I need, I need help in doing that. And so just setting that anchor in my life really helped me. That's good. So one of the, one of the questions I love to ask all my guests, um, if you could go back to that junior in college, if you could go back in time and give yourself one piece of advice, looking back on everywhere you've been and everything you've done, uh, what would it be? Hmm. Yeah. So I think for me, um, it would, I would want to share about how, how much relationships matter and that people are the program. Uh, you know, as a naturally intentional person, I believed, I believe this from, I don't know, up until I was 23 years old, that the better I knew God and the better I knew the Bible, the more impactful my ministry would be. Um, out of college, I started with the Navigators, and we were planting a campus ministry, and I was on a team of four, another guy and two other, two ladies. And as I lived with this guy who was from Georgia, his name was Drew, um, we were just total opposites. I mean, he was captain people person. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I remember going to the grocery store with him. This is in Amarillo, Texas. First time we went to the groceries, we were sharing an apartment, went to the grocery. I go through the checkout line, you know, it's normal like every other time I'd ever been through he goes through, he smiles at the lady, you know, says hello. She's offering him these free things and, you know, he's getting all sorts of stuff. And I'm like looking at him like, what is this? What happened? Right. right. Yeah. Well, that was just true. Um, that's how he uh, engaged people. And that's the response that he often got. Well, he would often, you know, look at me and say, man, I wish I knew the Bible the way that you do. And I trained him on some things on campus, on how to do some things, because he hadn't had the opportunities I'd had in college. And um, and yet, uh, after about a month, he had lots of guys just stopping over. Hey, is Drew home? Is Drew home? I had a couple guys that if I chased them down, they would hang out. You know, we'd do something. But they weren't coming to me. One day, uh, one of these guys that I'd chased down, you know, shows up at my door. And I'm super excited, right? So finally. Yeah, you've arrived. Right. This guy, Bobby, shows up, and we small talk a little bit, and then he's kind of looking around. He's like, hey, is Drew around? <laughs> yeah. So Yeah. yeah. That, that was the way like, you said that explains it all. Yeah. 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 yeah that was that. Um, and that was really hard for me uh, to move through into process because I couldn't say, well, maybe Drew knows the Bible better than me. Maybe that's the problem here. Because he was telling me, right? Yeah. yeah he... I wish I knew. And so that was really a paradigm shift for me that it's not just about how well you know God or know the Bible. You need both. You need relational skills and you need to know the word and, you know, who God is and what he's doing in your life. And I only had half of that. And um, and so it, it set me on a course that I'm, honestly, I'm still on today. I've made a lot of improvement and growth, but I still, you know, am always working to grow in my people skills and relational skills. And if I could have told that to myself at 19, I could have gotten started four years earlier and, and uh, you know, saved myself some of the, the struggle that I went through. Uh, certainly in that story that I just told, that that was really, you know, it was hurtful. In a lot of ways, I felt like a failure and I felt like, 
man, it's disciple making. I even do this Mm. effectively. Um, and that's one of the passions I have today is helping people see that it doesn't matter whether you're an introvert or an extrovert disciple making is for you. And each design offers certain things that the other doesn't. We can learn from one another. And one of the things I really appreciate about our friendship is just, you know, you're one of those naturally relational guys. And so, you know, I just enjoyed uh, watching you and asking you questions and getting those insights that, you know, aren't always apparent to me about relational situations. So well, it's, it's definitely been a, a joy for me to learn from you as well. Um, and I bet other people will want to learn from you. And so where would you send uh, my friends who want to follow up with well, Justin, you blog on a pretty regular basis. Yep. Every other week, I put out a piece on disciple making. It's, and it's really good stuff. I share it a lot. For If you follow me on social media, you probably see me share it. Um, how do they How do they subscribe to your blog if they want to connect with you? Yep. So my website is justingravit.com. Um, and then the blog's right there. So there's a way to, to sign up for the blog right when you're on the website. And now lots of pastors probably listening may, all over the country. Uh if they're like, I need what Justin's got. Yep. Um, yep. What What would you tell them to do? So connect with me. Probably be the <clears throat> easiest way I can connect you through. So I'm part of the the national leadership for Navigator Church Ministries. Uh, we have 135 staff uh, scattered around the country, and so connect with me. You can engage me through the blog. I'm also on Facebook and I Twitter a bit, though I'm not that great at it. Um, my Twitter handle is jgravit. Um, so. Uh, yeah, that would probably be the best way. Uh, any way we can help and assist. I know that lots of pastors out there are trying to figure out, well, what now? If this attractional model is not going to work, then what do we do? And if we're not seeing disciples made, um, and sometimes we don't even understand what that means. Yeah. You know, I've had pastors say to me, you know, I have no, no trouble making disciples. The trouble I have is getting them to, to reproduce. And I don't say this unless I know them really well. But when I hear that, it's similar to somebody saying to me, you know, I have no trouble making chairs. The problem is when someone sits on them, they break, right? And so... Come on, that'll <laughs> preach. Right? So right. You're not making disciples unless your disciples are making disciples. Absolutely. Yep. And so if, if pastors out there want help and need help, uh, let me know and I will do everything in my power to connect you with somebody that can help you uh, because help is available and it's out there. Um, and the other thing I, I would say is that for those who are listening, who are not pastors, disciple making is for you. It's for everyone, right? Yes. Oh man, that's such yes. an important message. And you know, it's, my, not, it's not gift of the spirit. It's every person who follows Christ is called to be a disciple maker. Yep. There's no gift of disciple making, right? It does not exist. You will never find it in the scriptures. There's no gift of disciple making. There's a call and all of us are called to disciple. And the, the, it's really an opportunity. And so, you know, when I first was engaged with the vision of disciple making, my life was radically changed because church changed from something that was something I had to do and had to go to and really didn't have anything, any way for me to contribute in a significant way other than volunteering, which is important, leading Sunday school, but a lot of those things I didn't feel like engaged the deepest parts of me. Mm-hmm. Um, it was more of a plug and play situation. Uh, but disciple making, it requires everything you have. And only you can disciple those that God's calling you to disciple because we're the only ones with the set of relationships that we have, right? And so it is 
a deeply fulfilling thing. And so whether you're a pastor, whether you're a lay person, um, you know, if you're not engaged in making disciples, man, you're missing out. You're missing out. Now, you're also doing some speaking coming up at uh, discipleship.org. I mean, you're going to lead a couple workshops there. Um, it's one of the premier disciple-making events in the country, right? Tell us a little about that. Yes, so disciple, discipleship.org is the website, and it's a, a collaborative effort. Bobby Harrington leads it down in Nashville, and 20 disciple-making organizations, 20-plus, come together each year in Nashville, and normally it's October or November. This year it's November. Um, for a two-day disciple-making forum. And so we'll be down there again. I'll be leading a set of workshops. And um, yeah, we just encourage you, whether you're a pastor or not, if you want to just learn more about it, uh, they have a blog as well. Um, you know, And they put out a few podcasts, uh, not to detract from your audience. Uh, the more the merrier. Listen, it's all for the kingdom. Amen. Uh, so yeah, you could check that out. Uh, it's a great opportunity, and and that's the other thing. You know, we have 135 staff, but I'm connected to the leaders of those 20 organizations that could also help. So there's lots of opportunities out there to get to know Justin and his ministry and what God's called them to, and and maybe even in that process, hear a little bit more about what God's calling you to. So uh, I, I just want to thank you, Justin, for the time today. Uh, thanks for sharing your heart and being vulnerable, and I. I'm excited to continue to see how God is going to use you uh, in the world. Amen. Thank you. It's been fun. Wow. That was a tremendous conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I've listened to that episode several times now, and just it just continually impacts me on the discipline and the life change that Justin has gone through with his family. Um, would you do me a favor? Would you hook up with Justin on his on his blog, his Instagram or his Twitter account and just say thanks. Thanks for uh, being so vulnerable and, and sharing his heart on this conversation. Um, you can also find a, a link to Justin through my social media, which is uh, at TWMilt, Twitter, Instagram, and on Facebook. We'd love to connect with you. You can always also visit our website at thereclamationpodcast.com or TWMilt.com, T-W-M-I-L-T. As always, you know, we couldn't do this without you. So thank you so much. The best compliment you can give us is to share the podcast with a friend. Maybe tell somebody who's never listened to it before. Email them, text them. You can find us on all the podcast providers. Um, we're grateful. Grateful to be in community with you. Hey, next episode, a uh, super special friend of mine, Derek Latimer, who's actually a pastor turned atheist. We have uh, just a very unique conversation. If you want to make sure that you don't miss, now's the time to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Have a great day, everybody. Look forward to talking to you real soon. Like what you heard? Please take a minute to rate and share so others like you can find good practices for faith and life.